In light of COVID-19, Sport Calgary's compiled together a directory of webinars and digital events to help you stay connected in the Calgary sport community. Learn more at sportcalgary.ca. Hey, hey, hi, hey, ho, 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 ho. How you holding up, kids? Uh, it's your old uh, podcasting pal, Rob Kerr. Glad you could stop by. It is a uh, version, a, uh, an addition, uh, a new chapter, if you will, of the original Six Feet Conversation podcast. Our attempt here at Sport Calgary, of which I am a board member of, proudly a volunteer board member of, uh, our program here is just to tell the story of sport in Calgary, uh, athletes in Calgary, coaches in Calgary, basically uh, to be a diversion in this pandemic, uh, to give you something to, to log into, listen, learn a little bit about, and, and hopefully highlight maybe some people and stories that you didn't know were in our own backyard. So it has been a pleasure and a joy. Joy, absolute joy so far, and that joy continues today. Uh, how much fun was this? Thanks for asking. I, I appreciate the questions from the audience. Uh, this was a pleasure. Uh, I got to know Jessica O'Connell. First time I got to talk to her, I feel like uh, it was just a great conversation about what it means to be an Olympic athlete. Um, her honesty, especially at the end of the conversation when we she puts things into such great perspective and, and really – turns back the curtain on a couple. I, I use that word, and I'm thinking about it now, but I use that word in the conversation. She turned back the curtain on some really cool things. So I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. I know I certainly did. Um, before we get there, do want to take this opportunity to let you know that Sport Calgary is the voice of over 275 sport organizations in the Calgary area. Share your voice and become a Sport Calgary member for free. SportCalgary.ca slash members. Settle in, sit down, grab a beverage, and let's spend some time with an Olympic, well, an Olympian, Olympian, uh, Jessica O'Connell. How are you holding up? I'm doing well. Um, and I, I feel almost embarrassed saying that because I know that many people are not. But um, my day-to-day hasn't changed that that much because I work from home and I've amassed a nice little home gym in my house. And, and I'm, I think I'm doing, I'm one of the lucky ones. <laughs> Where were you when this all sort of set in? Did you have a sense as an athlete in preparation for an Olympics? Did you have a an earlier sense than maybe some of us had that something was awry? Um, I mean, as an athlete, I have lots of downtime, which is spent on Twitter <laughs> and Instagram. <laughs> so I, I think I may have seen a lot of the, like, sense, it's not sensationalist, the realistic news earlier than maybe some. And so... As soon as I saw what a virus growth curve looks like and, and saw the, the timeline of everything going down in China, like, there is no way that this is going to happen on time. There, like, no way. So by the time the games are postponed, I, I definitely come to terms with it, and I wasn't surprised at all. And I, I want to ask you a little bit about that because you mentioned social media, and I, I did happen to, to take a look, and, and you were – you know, pretty active in, in the communication of that. Did you have a role, Jessica, at all to play in, in or did you, you know, voice an opinion in, in the decision? No, no. I I mean, I, I've been well versed in it because we've been getting so, so, so many updates and whatnot, but no, I, I played no role. Yeah. And, and, but you had no problem with the decision either though, correct? No, I definitely think it was the right decision. I think that they made a really good point that we were being put into a, a very awkward position where it's, well, you need to be the very best you've ever been, but don't ever leave your house. That's not compatible. You can't do both of those things. And so people either couldn't do that or they were 
just taking risks that they probably shouldn't be. So I think it was definitely the most responsible decision for humanity to say, just, just wait, <laughs> let's just, just save this for a bit. As we speak today, do you have any clarity upon, you know, your, uh, your participation next year? Do you know, is anything changed or will it change for you? I don't have um, the Olympic standard in my event yet. So in track, there are two ways to qualify. You can either run a certain time or you can have a certain world ranking. And I missed the qualifying time by 0.6 of a second in a 15-minute race. I run the 5K. So Ooh. that was uh, that would make my life a lot easier right now. But I'll have more opportunities next year. And my world ranking is quite good. So that may change with how they rejig the qualification process. And I'm not sure how they're going to do that yet. But I think that there'll be enough time, assuming that this does settle down, that, I mean, if I'm going to go to the games, I want to be fit and healthy. And so I should hopefully be fit and healthy next spring to be competing and racing and whatnot and doing what I would have to do anyway, what I would have to do this summer or this spring I'll do next spring. Do, do you have, I think, probably the best term in, in, in reference to what we're going through right now? Do you have athlete stress about this? Are you, are you is this causing you, you know, a, a little bit more emotional Whatever, you know, I guess it comes back to stress about the waiting and the, and the not knowing. Honestly, it's the opposite. I feel like a piano was lifted off my back. Um, I've been hurt. So I'm dealing with an Achilles injury right now. And it was going to be a rough um, lead into the Olympics. I was still confident that there was a good chance that I'd be able to pull it together because yep. I have after injuries before with a similar timeline. But it's not, that's not how I wanted it to be. Like, I, I didn't want my buildup to be spent 80% on the elliptical or in the pool or whatever and just, just forcing myself to get fit and, and doing everything I could and not knowing if it was going to work out. And that's hard. And that's what I did in 2016. Uh, before the Olympics, I was injured as well with a very similar timeline. And it's not really the fairy tale that people dream of as they prepare for the Olympics. And so... I've been gifted this this time to heal my injury properly and then build up and I don't have to rush back. And I feel so, so lucky that there's this amazing silver lining that I can do it right and do it properly. I have a second chance. The uh, traditional sports interpretation of an Achilles injury is not good, that it's a difficult injury. Um, how did How did you get it and what's the recovery been like? Oh, yeah, I've had a lot of Achilles injuries. <laughs> like They just keep coming back okay. on both sides, which is very frustrating. I even had a radiologist at one point tell me that I should give up running and take up knitting. But <laughs> I chose not to yeah, take that to all heart. Right. <laughs> but I did, I, I did recognize that, okay, this is definitely a weak area on my body. Um, this one I got competing, or sorry, preparing for a race in February. Um, called the Milrose Games, which is a very, very big indoor track meet in New York City. And I was feeling great. Um, I should note, I pulled out of the World Championships last summer with an Achilles injury on the same side. But it had been feeling great all fall, all winter. I, everything was smooth. I'd even raced on it. Um, and I was doing a tune-up workout just like the day before I was supposed to leave for New York. And I felt my Achilles twinge a teeny, like the smallest bit, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm very sensitive to that. And I was like, okay, well, that's not good. But my flight was the next morning. So I hopped on the plane. I went to New York, 
still didn't really know if I should race because it's my favorite race and it, it was the smallest twinge and like it was nothing. It, it, it was a hangnail. <laughs> Uh, but I told myself if it hurts in the race, I'll drop out and it hurt in the race. So I dropped out and then, um, ended up being just by chance. I went to Victoria for a training week, a few, the, the following week. And I saw our sport med doc there and he happened to have a bedside ultrasound and I'd been jogging on my Achilles. No problem. Like it hadn't been that big of a deal. It was kind of sore, but it wasn't catastrophic. I didn't think, but he, the doctor used the bedside ultrasound and he's like, no, Jess, there's like a, there's a tear here. This is a torn Achilles. <laughs> like, oh, that's cow. not good. So that, that's an instant six weeks off. So I felt like the rug was pulled under me. I couldn't believe it. I still can't. <laughs> and, and the recovery process for that, it's obviously non-surgical. It's just rest. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I was cross training and whatnot, but resting it from like impact. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, how does that impact? You know, here I was talking about the stress of, of an Olympic decision, but an injury like that and one that seems to be, you know, one that is, is it inherited a little bit in the sport too, though? People get hurt a lot in running. I mean, yeah, yeah running injuries are, are very, very common. Okay. Does it mentally, is that something you deal with? The injury component? Definitely, because my, my career has been hurt, healthy, hurt, healthy, hurt, healthy. And, and so the highs are good. I'm able to come back and I've made lots of world championship teams and stuff between the injuries, but the injuries always come back. And I haven't had a full healthy year ever, I don't think, maybe five or six years ago. And it's that's been really frustrating. Uh, I think one of my greatest superpowers is that I have been able to come back from these injuries really, really quickly and, and been quite fit quite fast after. Um, and I'm proud of that, but it's like constantly throwing duct tape on things and I never, I'm doing something wrong cause then I just get hurt again. <laughs> so I am hoping to use this extra time to, to like really unpack, like, why is this happening and strengthen little things that I may have missed. I'm like working with my physio and strength coach through like FaceTime and Skype right now. And yep. they've noticed a few things that they never have before. It's like, Oh, course I'm always hurt my ankles are collapsing almost into the ground like we need to fix that before I'll start running again so this this time is so nice because I've never had that I've always been rushing back for something big what what do you do you mentioned you have um you could kind of your own gym in 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 house right now are you doing any kind of road work are you out about you know social distancing responsibly of course but are you out and about doing any road work not yet, because I'm still rehabbing the injury, okay. so I'm not at that yet, but hopefully soon. Okay. Um, why 5,000? Why, <laughs> why, why that particular distance and discipline? It seems to be what I'm best at. I, when I was in high school, I'd run the 800 and 1500, and the 1500 is my favorite event. I think it's so fun. It's like a game, tactics and stuff, but mm -hmm. I don't have as much natural speed as you need to... Um, to be successful in the event, so I moved up to the five, and that seems to be my sweet my sweet spot. <laughs> I've I've never heard of a distance referred to as fun. That, <laughs> so why bear, dig down a bit on that for me? Why is the fifteen hundred fun for you? Well, maybe I'm not running it properly because it's not <laughs> my like main event anymore. <laughs> but it's short enough that 
it's just over, especially compared to a five. Like you don't even realize when you're on the last lap and you can get anything out for a lap. And, but it's long enough that you can sort of play games with people and, and race them instead of just like enduring the distance. You're really racing each other. It's, it's way more strategic than, than longer distance races. I love the fact that you use the term you can play games with them. How much of how much is there in terms of gamesmanship and and one-upmanship or getting in somebody's head in, in terms of a race? <laughs> well, maybe not like that because runners are, are very nice to each other. <laughs> oh, okay. So everybody gets along. We're a community. Uh, yeah, for, honestly, for the most part, but okay. there is a lot of like timing your finishing kick, and um, in track races no one ever wants to be the, the leader of the race through the bulk of it because that takes a lot more energy. So trying to position yourself in the field and, yep. and when you'll time your final sprint is, is the big thing. How about the 5,000 though? That is your discipline. How strategic is that? How much t- um, strategy, again, you just alluded to it a little bit about not wanting to be the leader, but how strategic is a 5,000 meter race? It depends on the type of race. So if it's if it's a race where you're just trying to run really fast, like you don't really care where you place, you just want to run a really fast time, then it's it's not that strategic at all. You just sort of ride the pain train to to hopefully some sort of really really fast time. But in something like an Olympics or a World Championship, it's quite strategic because again, you don't want to be the leader. So often the races will go quite slow as people sort of play chicken with each other and then they'll ramp up near the end and where everyone's sprinting. You see that a lot. Yeah. Which part are you better at? Definitely the steady pace. I, um, I, I get nervous when there's tactics involved and, and being able to match moves and stuff. So that's something I've tried to work on in my training. And that's one of the reasons why I like racing is just to practice that. It seemed like from the, the nice thing about what I've been able to do the last couple of weeks is talk to different athletes and, and uncover these things that I didn't know about sports. So I'm trying to learn a little bit more about what your sport and your discipline entails. What what makes a good 5,000 meter runner in your eyes? What what makes the, you know, the better competitor? It's hard. They come in all shapes and sizes. Okay. <laughs> they... As a 5K runner, you have to be very aerobically fit. So you have to be fit enough to run a 10K or even a half marathon quite well. But you also need a lot of speed for your finishing kick. So you should also be able to run a decent 1500. So it's sort of a neat hybrid spot where you're sort of a great generalist in everything. Uh, A jack of all trades, master of none. And then um, you also need to have a really good understanding of what's going on where your competitors are and where you are in relation to them, because often these races will get really bunchy and there's lots and lots of athletes in one like very small area. I'm really short. So sometimes I struggle with this because if you're at the back of a pack and, and there's a breakaway, you need to be able to match that. So you need just a really good awareness of your surroundings. So how much, uh, when you're in a race, that awareness, uh, is there a built-in familiarity with the group that you're competing against, or are there new people coming in all the time that there's variables that maybe you don't expect? Both, for sure. Okay. Um, you kind of see the same faces on the circuit over and over, but you just you never know when someone's going to do something crazy. <laughs> what about things like altitude? What about things like indoor-outdoor? How much do those impact you? Um, well, every April, except for this year, I go to Flagstaff, Arizona, for an altitude camp for about a month. Um, 
this is the first time I've had Easter at home for a few years, so it'll be different. <laughs> but and the first time I've endured a spring in Calgary, I forgot that it's so gray <laughs> and gross. <laughs> I had no idea. But I I really like being at altitude camps because it's just a nice step away from like the day to day, and it, it's just aside from the training benefit, which is very real, and it, it's it's just really nice to be around like like-minded athletes just separated from all distractions. That's great. For the lay person like myself, when you say an, an altitude camp, is it simply just regular training you do here, but you just do it at a higher altitude or is there something more specific to take advantage of that, that altitude? We do a lot of live high, train low. That's the scientific term for it. So we'll stay up in Flagstaff at 7,000 feet uh, and then we'll go down to Sedona, Arizona, which is about an hour's drive. And it's about the same elevation as Lake Louise. So it's still a little higher than Calgary, but much, much lower than uh, Flagstaff. And we'll do harder workouts there. So that really maximizes the altitude benefit without sacrificing intensity. In, in terms of competition in a, in a season, how much are elements and weather? Because a lot of, I'm assuming, or some of your training or uh, competitions inside, but how much... Outside, how much does weather play a role? Mm-hmm. I only race indoors through the winter, then okay. that season's over. So all of the outdoor races are all through the summer and fall, I guess. And weather's huge. I mean, there's nothing more heartbreaking than being at a race ready to roll, and it's raining or it's cold or windy, and, and it's just it's rolling the dice, honestly. And that's why there are a lot of very, very fast track races in California in the spring because the weather's quite predictable. It's almost always like 18 degrees with no wind right. at six o'clock. So um, people know where good weather spots are and they'll flock to them. Now, you're, again, the, the beauty of, of having this conversation is I get to learn things. How big is your team? This is the question I've learned to ask about track athletes. How big is your team, Jessica? My, like, training team? Well, I mean, the people that get you ready for competition, because you've already mentioned you know, there's a sports doctor, obviously, that you share, but do you have individual, you know, do you have individual coaches, coach? Do you have a sports psychologist? How, how many people help you get prepared? Hmm. Well, I train with a motley crew of people here in Calgary. I, I train alongside Maria Bernard, who's a uh, an Olympic steeplechaser. Okay. And then we built this little group of our friends. So we've got a master's athlete named Sherry Boyle, who just loves doing workouts. And she's just great, positive energy. And then two guys, um, Damien and Mike, they are orienteers. (laughs) And they don't have a huge coaching program. So they've been fantastic at just doing our workouts with us and helping us through them. So I'll say, Mike, this, this week we're doing like six by a kilometer. And he says, great, I'll run 800 meters off of your kilometers and I'll help you for as long as I can so they have been awesome and very very selfless and Maria's husband Matt is is doing that as well so we've got our tiny little group and we're coached by Mike Van Tegum who is um he's been coaching me since high school so <laughs> like over a decade and he also coaches or has worked with Melinda Elmore who's the new Canadian marathon record holder so he's um he certainly coached a lot of great athletes before um, but he doesn't live here anymore. He retired and moved to Summerland, BC. So he does that remotely, but he comes from time to time. So it's it's just us at practices, like holding ourselves accountable. But then there's a ton of people behind us. I've got 
um, an amazing physio that I work with, Tyson Plesuk, and a great strength coach, Carla Robbins. Um, I, I get regular massages. I've just started working with the sports psych, but that's it's a new thing for me, so it's something I'm looking to incorporate. So those are my people in Calgary, and then we're also supported by Athletics Canada. They don't have a base in Calgary, mm-hmm. but um, they have lots and lots of resources in Victoria or Toronto, and we can call them or email them or anything like that whenever we want, which is awesome. I, I think those numbers surprise people. At least maybe uh, maybe I'm the one that's surprised, but it's fascinating to me in such an, a, an individualistic sport, right, and you are the runner, that there is so many people that go to aid and help and assist and get you to where you need to go. I, I That's fascinating to me. Oh, I know. It's so <laughs> feel very privileged that so many people are <laughs> helping me out. <laughs> what kind of coach, because you, you mentioned your coach has been with you since high school. What does Jessica O'Connell need from her coach? What what kind of coach works best for you? Um, he Well, he writes the workouts. So he tells me what to do for my training and I have a master's in exercise physiology and I do some like some personal training coaching and stuff for people. So in theory, I should be able to write my own workouts, but it's, it's so nice to have someone who's known me for so long and is like, just, just wants the best for my training to do it for me. Like that is, it's so nice to have a coach, um, like take, take the reins there, get sort of all second guessing and whatnot. Um, he's also just a great mentor a great like friend (laughs) number one fan like bounce ideas off each other he's he's always there to support send virtual hugs or real hugs stuff like that do you need to be challenged of course doesn't everyone (laughs) well uh, you know what i don't know i thought so but i think now you know athletes and and i think coaching is broadened to the point where it you know and i keep using the term you coach the individual or you coach the athlete do you, do you, it seems to me that you, what I'm hearing from you is you need to coach the person, right? Mm-hmm. So you need to be, you know, the, challenged, like you're not doing it right or you're missing something. You don't need to be reinforced with the positive. Um, a bit of both. Yep. I, I think because we're on our own and we don't have Mike watching us all the time, we've learned to really help each other and, and, and like provide almost a sounding wall, like. I think many runners are their own worst, worst, harshest critics because we're all very type A and just very like results focused. And so yeah. often our cool downs are spent. One of us will have a, a rough workout and the rest are telling them it, it was rough because it's fine. You worked on your feet all day and you're sick or something like that. So we challenge ourselves and we validate each other's feelings very well. Are you a shoe junkie? How, how important is footwear for you? Um, I wouldn't say that I'm a shoe nerd. I I have a lot of pairs of running shoes, but I yeah I don't keep up with the like super 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 techie trends. <laughs> <laughs> there, that's the one thing. There is a lot of technology out there, isn't there? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> and and it's easy to kind of get lost in that sometimes. I think or mm-hmm. could be right trendy. You know, following the next trend or something like that. It's it, what is it for you? Is it just are you a, 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 a someone who does the same thing all the time, or, or, or can you, you know, uh, su- are you superstitious? Let me ask it that way. Do you have to do certain things in preparation for a race? Um, 
well, from a shoe footwear perspective, I figure if it ain't broke, why fix it? Got so it. I don't mm-hmm. want to try something new. If I'm this injury prone anyway, why would I try a new minimalist or maximalist shoe or something like that? Just <laughs> let's control something. Um, but am I superstitious? Not really, except I really um, go to great lengths to make sure that I have some ice cream the night before every race. That is my good luck charm. It makes me happy. Um, it's a great way to explore a new city. <laughs> it's delicious. I really like it. Oh, I love it. I love it. What's the go-to flavor? Oh, honestly, it depends on the, the oh. local offerings. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so that, that, that actually tells me a little bit about you. You're adventurous. You'll go out. You do not need to have, you know, uh, vanilla or chocolate. You could, you could on any given day try the local flavor. I could. I could do that. Unless <laughs> it's like asparagus or something. Well, yeah, of course. Well, that's just <laughs> common sense now, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> uh, in conversation with uh, Jessica O'Connell, our guest here on the Original Six Feet Conversation podcast, Sport Calgary is the voice of over 275 sports organizations in the Calgary area. Share your voice and become a Sport Calgary member for free at sportcalgary.ca slash members. What did you do growing up? What sports? Um, I did Irish dancing, actually. Really? I was useless at all sports. Useless. I scored one goal on my kindergarten soccer team, on my team. It was, <laughs> like, <laughs> negative points. <laughs> I failed swimming lessons three times. I went to basketball camp. I'm 5'2", so that was obviously not a booming success. <laughs> so, I yeah, I was useless, but I grew up when right when river dance became really popular. So my parents threw me in Irish dancing. My last name's O'Connell. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> All the little girls in my uh, my like grade two class were doing it, and I, I really took to it. I competed in Irish dancing for 10 years, and I even went to the World Irish Dancing Championships. That was my first foray into international competition. Wow. That's something else. Now, where were those? Where did They, they were where... in... In Belfast. Oh, okay, so really, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it didn't go great. Uh, <laughs> turns out that the standard of Irish dancing is not the same in Western Canada as it is in Ireland for the most part. <laughs> Who knew? So I came last, but don't worry, there was a very large tie for last. Basically, if you weren't going to be in the top half, then everyone was last. But uh, not only did I get to experience international competition, but I got to experience failure. So, you know, just great learning experience. <laughs> Did you like competing? Like, was the competing, was that what you enjoyed the most? Yeah, I loved it. (laughs) Yeah, my sister did it as well. And after our first competition, our first one was the the same one. And we're, it's age groups. So she was in a different age group. And she won, like, handfuls of medals. She's pretty talented. And I wasn't as talented. And that just made me so mad. (laughs) I was very, very jealous of her hardware. So that, I was like, that's not going to happen again. I'm just going to work harder <laughs> next time i'm getting more medals which is very um that's that's grade two logic for you but <laughs> so when did you cross over from dance to track when did that when did that happen i always joined the school like track and cross country teams okay. um i liked running and, and i thought it'd be good cross training for dancing i'd even go for runs like every day before school to make me more fit for my dancing but i didn't join a track club until grade 11 all through the years, I'd, I'd get a little faster and a little faster. And by grade 11, I was the fastest not track club kid. 
And so my coach came up to me and he's like, hey, do you want to come out to practice? <laughs> and I did. So what, what, when did it all click or when, when does that evolution, I mean, if you're a late adopter, you're part of the track team now in grade 11, when does the, the serious gene kick in for you? So I started in November of grade 11 and that spring I was at our provincial championships and I set a new provincial record in the 15. Oh. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> like I had no idea that I, I was able to do that because I'd only run like little tiny like high school races that, that thus far. And then I went to junior nationals that summer and I had to kind of battle with my coach for that because um, I was in a younger age group. Like I think junior nationals is U19 and I was only 16 or 17. So I was like a little bit too young, but you could go. And I was like, no, I, I can definitely do this. I'm not like immature because I've done dancing competitions for years and years. So I won that battle and I got to go and I won two bronze medals in the 800 and the 1500. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> turns out I'm actually quite fast. And so that, that was definitely a turning point because I never, ever, ever, ever thought that that was going to happen. <laughs> I, I was so excited. I just like that. That's, that's one of like, oh, I was just so happy. <laughs> how did, how did your world change? It made me realize that I actually was an athlete. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'd never been, I'd always worked really hard, but I'd never been that successful at any sport or anything like that. Yep. And my world really changed because through track I met all kinds of new friends that I hadn't known at my own high school and I clicked with them a lot better than my high school group. Like I just felt like I had so much more in common with them and they're all my best friends to this day. So I felt like confident at something for the first time and had friends that I clicked with more. I mean, that's, that's life altering. <laughs> so you find you find cross country in grade 11 you set provincial records the next well half a year later mm -hmm. when did you start to get recruited when did people start coming to you and and wanting to work with you I guess grade beginning of grade 12 I forget when the recruitment period was um for for university I actually reached out to more schools than reached out to me okay. um, because I think that you're just not on the radar that much as an Albertan. Yep. So they just didn't, they just had never heard of me. And that's how I, I did most of my American school visits. You would, am I correct? You went to West Virginia? Yes. Ha, yes. I did. I did my first year of, of university at, um, in Calgary and then I went to West Virginia. Okay. So, sorry, I was going to ask you, so you, you went to UFC, were you competing at UFC? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then I decided to transfer because since I'd grown up in Calgary, I had always wanted to go away for university. And I mean, I stayed at UFC to, to work with my coach who I trusted and adored. And I was with all my best friends and stuff, but it wasn't, the university experience that I had been seeking. Like I, I had always wanted to go away and I felt like I was just still in high school. So that's why I chose to transfer. Why West Virginia? What was the attraction to, to go there? The coach was Canadian. He, well, he still is. He's still there. <laughs> so at the time there were six Canadians on the team and a former West Virginia athlete was named Megan Metcalf. She is from Edmonton and she had just competed in the 5k at the Beijing Olympics. And so she'd always been like a 
role or a she wasn't a role model at the time because I didn't know her, but she was like a, a hero figure. And I did a lot of background research to see if people were still competing after their college career, were did were they successful, were they getting faster at this and that? And I thought that West Virginia was a good fit there. So you're three years from joining the high school track team to being in the United States competing at a college? Two years. Two, oh, yeah. Two years. Two and a half. Two and a half. Two and a half years. That's that's a little bit remarkable, isn't it? <laughs> like, I, I just, I, that, I, love, I love stories like this. I love stories because, you know, what the world's like now. Early specialization. Geez, we gotta, we got to create the next this or that. The fact mm-hmm. is that somebody can find their passion and find something and, and so quickly be rewarded. What was your experience in the NCAA like? <laughs> it wasn't as easy as the first few years of my training, <laughs> <of> my career, <laughs> of course. Yeah, I was a little blindsided when I realized, oh, yeah, <laughs> this is actually pretty hard. Um, I'd never been injured before like getting to West Virginia because I'd only been running for two years. And I honestly thought my body was like bulletproof, but I think that's just you. <laughs> so once I got to West Virginia, there there's just a lot of bad things that happened. I was anemic one year. The next year I tripped at our like regional national qualifier, fell on my face. That sucked. Um, the next year I was hit by a car crossing the street and I dislocated my shoulder. So that (laughs) derailed things for a while. And then I got my first Achilles injury. Um, and the, so my second from last year. So that, that derailed me for like eight or nine months because I had no idea how to deal with it. I had no idea about rehab and like strengthening exercises and this and that. So that was my first big thing. So, so at the end of the day, I graduated from West Virginia and I was, I had an okay career. I was an All-American a few times and stuff, but I was not that much faster than when I had gone in. I have missed something, or I didn't ask the question at, at when I should have. When did you find 5,000? When did you, or were you in West Virginia still competing in other disciplines? I think my first 5K was my last year there. Okay, so yeah. so you were doing other other distances, or were you? Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, the 1,500. Oh, okay, okay, I see. Um, you mentioned before, though, here, this is a whole conversation about sport, but you did say that you wanted to leave Calgary and go have the, the, the university experience. Did you get that? Did you have that university experience away from sport? Yeah. And it was, it was good and bad. I mean, like West, the West Virginia university is in Morgantown, West Virginia, which is a college town to the core, like 50% of inhabitants are college students. So it is so, so different from Calgary where like at West Virginia, people, people shop for their clothes in the bookstore. Like people's entire wardrobes say West Virginia on them. <laughs> and they're so proud. You can buy cakes that say West Virginia on them and have pictures of the football field at the grocery store. Like it's, it's crazy. A little cultish. So, yeah, I guess so. So, so, so different than home. And that was very cool. And being on an NCAA team with the same small group of girls was, was very cool too. Cause we really were a team and, they're still some of my closest friends to this day. So that, that was a very neat experience. Um, but it, the team was very um, single focused, I guess. So we didn't do a lot of partying and not a lot of extracurriculars and this and that because they were so focused on running, which is why I was there. But it, I 
I was expecting to be a little bit more balanced, I guess. Okay. But that's just, it is what it is. Like that's, I mean, I, I'm sure I could have created that for myself if I'd wanted to, but that I didn't. <laughs> you, you mentioned you're still friends with a lot of your teammates. Are you an active alum too? Um, I follow the team for sure. Okay. Okay. Um, you, you get through the university experience now. So now we're five and a half years in as a runner, right? Yeah, Something about like. that. <laughs> when does when is Team Canada on your radar? When do you become or when do you get on Team Canada's radar? Well, I competed for Team Canada before at the World Junior Championships and Pan Am Juniors and okay. U23 things like that. But yeah. no big, big senior teams, not the ones that you see on TV. Um, so when I graduated, I mean, honestly, I wasn't anywhere near being a like full-time professional runner or anything like that because I just hadn't improved very much. So I moved home. And I started a master's degree in exercise physiology at U of C um, because school and, and sport, I think, are very compatible because you're sitting and using your brain for one and you're moving and using your body for the other. Right. And so being a grad student provided funding. I was TAing quite a bit. Um, I got some scholarships. Um, so I was stable in that sense. And then I could continue training as I always had. So... I guess this is like 2012, 2013, 2014, big breakthrough. I managed to drop my 5K time by like 40 seconds or something. Whoa. After that, I was making senior teams and uh, being what I dreamed of. Where did the 40 seconds come from? I don't know. Okay, okay. I I do. No, I I do. It was just getting some consistency in for Mm. the first time in years and years. I wasn't hurt every two months I wasn't getting hit by cars and I wasn't anemic (laughs) and I think that I responded to my coach my current coach's training a little bit better than I did in West Virginia where we did a lot of mileage but I was often very tired and I just didn't know that maybe I needed a, a bit more intensity and maybe a few more rest days I just didn't I wasn't good at reading my body so Okay, so can now Team Canada is part of this. Obviously, the Olympics are are becoming a focus, right? Mm-hmm. What, tell me about your journey to 2016. Is it a, a fairy tale? Is it you know mm-hmm. work? What? How do you describe getting to represent our, our country in Rio? Not a fairy tale. <laughs> um, so 2014, I had my big breakthrough. I dropped my 5K time from 15.50 to 15.13 in a season, which is so, I was so happy, of course. Um, and then in 2015, I again lowered my 5K time. My season started out great. Um, a couple good races. I went over to Europe to do this really neat race circuit, which was like, that was the dream, like racing all over the world and, mm-hmm. you know, like big stadiums and diamond leagues and stuff it was so fun and then I came home and I was at a practice and my Achilles twinge this sounds kind of familiar and boom I was out for quite a while I I still ran the Pan Am games because this is this was one of my early Achilles injuries again I wasn't that good at reading myself then so I ran Pan Am games it was in a ton of pain then took the next four or five months off to rehab um came back early 2016 somehow managed to qualify for the world indoor championships because again like I'm, I'm very good at coming back from injuries really quickly but then they happen again so around the world indoors that was great experience gave me some more international experience which I was lacking at that time 
and then um, ended up pulling my calf in the spring. So I, it was very stressful because I'd run an Olympic qualifying time the year before, but we had to do this proof of fitness thing. So my fitness test was to run another um, qualifying time. And I did like two days before the window shut by two or three seconds. Oof. So like just by the hairs on my chin, which yep. I don't really have hairs on my chin. So very narrowly, I, um, I managed to pull that off. So it was, it was stressful. It was really stressful, all of it. <laughs> what was getting there though? I mean, when you arrived, when you're part of that, what was the feelings that were going through your head, Jessica, that, you know, here you are in 2016 in Rio de Janeiro with Team Canada. What were you thinking? A lot of relief that I'd pulled it together, for sure, because I knew that I was capable of it. I'd been running these times, and, like, I didn't know if it would work out, but it should, and it did, and so I was very relieved. I was The whole thing was really surreal. I mean... It went by so fast, and I was constantly like, what is happening? (laughs) Like, what is this village and stuff like that? And I was also very humbled because I kind of went in there like, oh, my journey was hard. I had injuries. And then talking with all the other athletes there, they all had something, too. Like, Derek Druin, he had stress fractures in his back, and he won a gold medal in the high jump. That's crazy. Another friend from Australia had been named to the team like two weeks before because there were all these appeals with politics. Like several had broken up with their boyfriends and girlfriends because they'd been so stressed out. And I I guess I thought that people's rides were smoother, but they're not. (laughs) No, like everyone's got an array of stuff to deal with. And so I left like quite humble. What, What an interesting observation to make. That that's fascinating to me, that you know because the 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 storybook is you make the Olympics, you compete, you know maybe you win, but you know if nothing else you've arrived, um, and and I wonder how much that story has been told about the sacrifice. We talk about sacrifice, we talk about how you get there, but for you as an athlete to talk about kind of the the human impact of of people finally getting to Rio. It's almost like, I know it's important. I don't don't want to belittle the competition at all, but it was almost like Mm -hmm. a sense of, oh, finally we're here. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah. What an interesting... Were you aware of, as an athlete, of the other things going on at the Olympics other than your competition? Were you concerned at all about the buildup and some of the criticisms that Rio was receiving going in, that the games were receiving? Are, are, are any of those things on your radar at all? Um, there was a degree of like heavy-heartedness knowing that we're in a very poor country and we're only making it poorer by hosting this very large event and a degree of anger hearing like the extravagant per diems and stuff that the IOC members are are getting and just just the corruption within the IOC but we were very sheltered from everything until (laughs) I remember the morning after my race um, I was called to this like meeting and every athlete was the day after they competed and there's an RCMP officer there it's kind of like, okay, bubbles burst. So this is like someone was mugged here. So don't go to this beach. And then this is like kind of a hot spot for some like pickpocketing. So don't go here. And like, there's no major crimes, but da, 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 da. so we were very sheltered from reality until after. And then 
um, much more aware and much more able to explore Rio and what it had to offer. The other question that I'd like to ask you about that experience was how aware were you as a female athlete of the success um, that women were having for our country and the story that it was back home? That oh, it was so cool. Okay. Um, I don't think that it was like, I never really saw it as female versus male, more that I happen to know more female athletes. Like they're just more of my friends are female yep. and my friends were winning medals. <laughs> like that's so cool. Like it, it was the weirdest thing to watch an athlete compete on TV where they look, they don't look human. They look like superhuman yep. and then see them in the, in the elevator two hours later. <laughs> like what? <laughs> that was very cool. <laughs> No, and the only re- the only reason I bring that up is because I was in the media at the time covering it back here, and and Cassie Campbell Pascal and I had this. She I never ha- I've talked to her a million times, but she came on during the Olympics, and she was just absolutely on fire. It was one of the greatest interviews I've ever done. Just talking about how great the women were and leading, and how that was a model for the rest of the world, and how important it was. And I've always wanted to know uh, from a female athlete that competed in that Olympics if you were aware of what was going on back home. It's just very cool. Yes, we we did know that there are like media lines like women are killing it. And it was like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's just it's very cool when you see um, a friend win a medal and you're like, they did that. And it makes it feel I mean, I like to be completely honest, I will never win an Olympic medal. But it makes it feel like more of something that's in the realm of possibilities, <laughs> which is very, very cool. Why would why do you say that? That you, you, that I probably won't win. Yeah. <laughs> um, because the gap between the the top 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 athletes and where I am is it, it's realistically it's quite large. Hmm. Did, is that difficult to come to grips with? Is that something that you would have said four years ago? No. Um, there the the very top of the field is so good, <laughs> and there's a very big like the there's span of ability in, in the 5k it's quite wide um, but that doesn't mean that it's not meaningful to me by any means it's like maybe my goals are to make a final or to be top 10 or top 8 and that's right, right. what I believe is in my realm of possibility and that would be that's still very 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 meaningful to me <laughs> no and, and listen I really appreciate the honesty about this and 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 I think it's educational to a certain extent for people on the outside who are just casual observers of sport or the Olympics or whatever that they go, well, you know, everybody, no, you know, you're being realistic and, and the adjustment of your goals are just as important, aren't they? Yeah, for sure. And it, it's always really bothered me when people are like, kind of like medal or bust. Like if you're not getting a, a medal, then why even bother? That's so unrealistic. That is so hard and so rare. And they're like, I mean, many, many people put amazing performances down, even if it doesn't result in a medal. And so the whole like, nah, they were fourth place. They suck. That really grinds my gears because that is so hard. <laughs> well, and that's what I hope people take away from this particular conversation, because now that's another kind of um, uh, curtain that I think you drew back. Like when you talked about just the work and the effort and getting to Rio, and now you're talking about that. To me, it's important that we hear this. It's important that we understand this um, because it's the reality of it, and it's your reality too. And as someone who represents our country, um, you know, I, I, to me, it's it's just incredible. A little bit of honesty. So I appreciate that. Thank you very much. 
Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, can you talk about Fast and Female for me? Because I'm a big fan of what Chandra Crawford has started here, and I know you you've worked with it and are an ambassador. Are you not? Yeah, it's awesome. I've I've been an ambassador for quite a few years, but I've also got to do a few panel talks and. I once traveled to Grand Prairie with, um, no, sorry, Grand Cache with Erica Weave to do a summit. So it's, it's been great. Um, I, so the point of fasting female is to encourage young girls to stay in sport because they drop out at a rate way, way higher than their male counterparts um, when matched for like socioeconomic factors and anything that you could think of matching. And the reason why is because they largely don't feel a sense of social belonging. They don't think sports cool, basically. They don't have role models and they, they just, it's not fun for them. And so Fast and Female aims to change culture by showing these girls that there are cool older athletes who, who love sport and showing them how it can enrich their lives and, and just show them that it's, it's a very beautiful thing. So the organization is led by Chandra Crawford, but the summits are all led by national team female athletes. So they get to meet their heroes, basically, is the idea. They, they get to be friends with Erica Weeb or yep. um, like Melissa Waffles or Kaylee Humphreys, whoever, um, or, or us, <laughs> people more like maybe slightly lower key, but more like I'm always at the track and it's a good opportunity to meet older athletes. Um, and it's been incredibly meaningful to me because I, I'm just shocked at how much my life has been changed and enriched by being part of sport. Like, again, as I said at the beginning, my friend group, my, my lifestyle, my sense of accomplishment and like sense of self, they're all related to, to sports. And I, I just can't imagine being as fulfilled without it. And so I want to be able to help share that with other girls and, Every time I've done a Fast and Female event, every single time, I've left being so pumped up because it's a great opportunity to meet other athletes like who are living the same life as I am and also to meet these girls, these kids who are they're just so excited and so pure and they just love doing activities. And so it's, it just reminds you why sport is so fun and so important. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I I applaud you. I applaud everybody involved because you know to get more and the numbers are really. I don't know if people appreciate the the, the staggering numbers, particularly on the female side. I mean, I'm concerned about overall participation and recruitment and retention in all sport, but on the female side, it's stark, and mm-hmm. and that's why I said before. I think your story is so important and so cool that you can show a young girl that hey, maybe I don't have that love today of a sport or I haven't found it but if I find it good things can happen in rather short order I think your story is beautiful for this purpose alone just to be a role model yeah thank you <laughs> yeah it's it's is are you making a difference do you have do you have a personal story or, or something of have you been able to mentor have you, have you seen the because I think we're starting to see it I, I really do believe we're starting to see the impact of this program Yeah. I mean, I've seen people come back year after year and (laughs) I've seen their confidence blossom and they're bringing friends and they're, then I'll see them at the track and they're still there. They're there years later. They're now like junior high school athletes, high school athletes, they're bringing their friends. And so it's sort of a a snowball trickle down effect, which is really, really cool. Yeah. That's amazing. All right. My last question for you. 
and I ask this to everybody. I put no <laughs> parameters. You, Jessica, get to choose the parameters. But I want you, because this is a podcast about Calgary athletes and sport in Calgary, and we tell some stories about the people involved. But I want a hidden Calgary gem, Jessica. No parameters. You come up with the parameters. Give me a hidden Calgary gem. Oh, boy. Um, I was going to say made by Marcus ice cream as an ice cream fan, but I wouldn't <laughs> say that's a hidden gem anymore. <laughs> I've seen that lineup. It's crazy. <laughs> I've been in that lineup multiple times a week. <laughs> I, um, I'd say No-Till. No-Till Park is awesome. It's like being in the city, but you're out of the city. It's a great place to go right now because it's so big that – you can easily so, so, so socially distance without having to, you know, like hold your breath as you pass someone because you probably won't pass that many people. There's lots of wildlife on it. It's it's awesome. You will maybe or maybe well probably will be interested to know that that was Katrina LeMay Doan's hidden gem too. Really? Yes. Oh, so that's funny. Great minds think alike. Clearly, we're talking about Made by Marcus, right? <laughs> <laughs> Right. We'll go with that. Uh, this I can't tell you how much fun this has been, Jessica. Thank you so much. Uh, and I really do appreciate the honesty. I, I, I loved where you went and where you took us on your journey. It's it's fantastic. And uh, we wish you, of course, a speedy recovery here and, and the best of luck in the coming in the coming year. But thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Yeah, of course. No worries. That right there, folks, was a fun conversation. Jessica O'Connell, as honest as an athlete can be, uh, her reality, her perspective on it, um, she never shied away from anything, never uh, didn't want – I thought it was awesome. Um, the, the part about um, the, the just the cost on people to get to the Olympics in 2016, even before it started, um, and, and the reality of what was going on there, and even her own reality of, of where she sits or sees herself in her own sport, the 5,000 meters. Um, just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful conversation. Really appreciate uh, Jessica, her honesty, and, and it was a fun chat. Uh, thanks to her, thanks to you. Uh, if you've missed out who we had, we've had Tom Higgins on this program, uh, Jesse Lumsden, and Randy Sherry. So there's three f- football guys right there. Plus, we've done the hockey guys, Peter Marr, Peter Labardius. We had all the Peters, really. Peter Marr, Peter Labardius, and Al Coates, to name a few. Um, we've had comedians, Trent McCullen, uh, uh, who else? George Canyon, Cass Campbell Pascal. Sandra Persina, holy cow, have we had a lot of great guests. Make sure um, you're checking out and subscribing at Spotify or uh, Apple, used to be iTunes, but Apple Podcasts, and uh, you'll never, ever miss an edition of the original Six Feet Conversation podcast brought to you by sportcalgary.ca. 